Hi, I'm Heather Mulder. And I'm Janice Greeno, and you're listening to Dementia Untangled, where we explore the topic of dementia through conversations with physicians, experts, and community leaders. Our discussions focus on innovative ideas, practical strategies, and proven methods to guide caregivers along a supportive path. Hello and welcome to Dementia Untangled. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of our podcast. Today, our conversation will be with Piper Frithson, who is a registered nurse and administrator with Casa de la Luz out of Tucson, Arizona. And we're going to be discussing reducing agitation through non-pharmacological approaches. Agitation and aggression can be distressing to people living with dementia and those who care for and about them. Historically, management of these behaviors has relied on pharmacological approaches, namely antipsychotics. However, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has not approved any antipsychotic drug for the management of behavioral symptoms. Further, antipsychotic medications have limited evidence for efficacy and high risk for adverse effects and their use is associated with reduced quality of life. The good news is there has been a shift in focus to non-pharmacological interventions to address agitation and research is ongoing to identify best practices and modalities. Heather, I love good news. And especially when it comes to improving quality of life for people living with dementia. And this topic that we're talking about today reminds me of a wonderful volunteer program that we had at a hospital where I was the director of volunteer services. And it was called the Sunshine Cart Program. And volunteers would actually go room to room and they would just cheer people up by um, having conversations with them. And then they gave all sorts of comfort items and little gifts. Maybe it was an activity like a word puzzle or a deck of cards, or it could be calming music, back scratchers. We even had colorful handmade blankets from volunteers. So. It was quite an awesome program, and our multidisciplinary team then even added aromatherapy and then started working toward creating a more dementia-friendly unit. That's incredible, Janice, and I think often these approaches seem so simple, but they make such a significant impact on the quality of life for the person living with the disease. So I'm really excited about our conversation with Piper today. Welcome, Piper. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, before we get into agitation and dementia, I'm curious to learn a little bit more about you. Tell us about your journey and what led you to connect with the dementia community. Well, to be honest, I've been a nurse for 25 years and I don't, you know, 25 years ago, I don't think I ever thought about my career being in hospice or in dementia. Um, so about three and a half, four years ago, I had an opportunity to leave acute care and come work for hospice. One of my friends had said, it will um, reconnect you with why you became a nurse. Um, truly, healthcare at the end of life is just, it's rewarding. It's a different focus when you look at quality and, and true um, life at the end of life and not just death. So 
maybe month two of being at CASA, um, I was invited to our agitation committee and I thought, well, what is this about? And we had started a program that looked at unwanted behaviors and how do we help decrease the burden to both of our patient and their caregivers by giving a toolbox. And so as we've progressed on this journey for three and a half years, I love I love the support that we give caregivers and the support and relief that we've provided patients. Um, and so I kind of fell into my love for um, agitation and dementia and looking at alternative therapies. And now it's like a topic at dinner parties that nobody wants to participate in but me. But it has, I kind of fell into it. I love that story. Thank you so much for sharing and teaching us about how you found your passion and are making such an impact for this population. I think Casa de la Luz has done some really interesting work around agitation, but before we learn more about that, tell me why are we even having this conversation? Why are we talking about agitation right now? So it is such, you know, agitation and the unwanted behaviors that come with agitation is such a burden for not just our loved ones or our patients that are experiencing that, but also for their caregivers, whether they are paid caregivers in a healthcare setting or their family caregivers. It's exhausting to be a caregiver alone, let alone have the added burden of dealing with unwanted behaviors directly related to agitation. So by really starting to look at those behaviors and, and what interventions or programs can we put in place to decrease that burden to both of our loved one who's experiencing the, the behavior, but also the caregiver that's providing care. Hopefully we can bring some quality of life and some peace to both of those individuals. Piper, I love that. And I loved hearing about your personal journey and about how you found a way to just reignite that spirit of care that drew you into healthcare. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about this passion and about the research and where it all started when it comes to reducing agitation. So that is a great story. And it actually started before I even started at CASA, but I, I've gotten to be on this great journey with him for almost four years. So Dr. Powell, who's one of our medical directors, had a patient who really our goal in hospice is comfort at end of life. And she had a very difficult patient that no matter what she did, she couldn't find comfort for him. She couldn't provide him comfort. And so um, he had dementia, advanced dementia with a lot of aggressive, unwanted behaviors. So his caregivers were stressed, he was stressed, everybody's emotions were high, he just wasn't comfortable. Um, so she, and he was still pretty um, active so medicating him wasn't the best option because all we would do then is take away what viable um, excitement he enjoyed in life. So by sedating him, it, it would fix the problem because he would be sleepy, but it wouldn't necessarily let him still live the same. Um, so that's where she decided to start a program at CASA, which is the agitation program, really looking at reducing unwanted behaviors, but not just with medications. So the first thing this committee did is we, they went out to research. So what's out there? Can we, you know, get a toolbox and, and give our nurses and caregivers and our, and our family members a toolbox so they know what to pull and how to do that? And there was nothing out there. I mean, there'd be one or two articles, but nothing about a toolbox that we could give to our caregivers, our families that say, 
for this agitated behavior, try this. And so really it was something lacking um, in how we care for patients with dementia or with unwanted behaviors. So we started to develop a toolbox, but we also wanted to make sure that it was legitimate, like we could reproduce it, that we were actually bringing value to what we were building. So we have a statistician on our group and she's brilliant beyond I can even imagine. So we started with the Pittsburgh Agitation Scale, which is a very well-known, accepted behavioral health agitation scale. So anyone who is referred to our, our program, we do a Pittsburgh Agitation Scale to get a baseline of what level of agitation are they. We do another one right before we start to institute an intervention, and then we do one after an intervention. So after doing this for about two and a half years, I think we collected data. We found that there's a significant, a statistical significant decline in agitation by utilizing the tools that we are, we are doing. We did learn that it takes about 2.2 interventions on average um, for us to see changes in the unwanted behavior. But this exciting work that we've done over the last four years has actually been published in um, the Journal for Hospice and Palliative Care Nursing Journal in December of 2020. So really we, we are starting to build that toolkit that four years ago, our program went out to find so we can give something to our to our caregivers, to our families, to the to our partners in long-term care facilities so they know how to turn to a program that will help them with these unwanted behaviors. Wow, Piper, that's um, such an impressive story. You're identifying kind of a, a hole in, in the resources that are available for caring for someone with the disease and, and finding a way to identify and address that. I think all of our listeners are, are going to benefit from learning about the tools that you have come up with through your work in agitation. I'm curious if you could share what really kind of causes these unwanted behaviors and more specifically agitation in people with dementia. You know, there is so many different causes for um, agitation or unwanted behaviors. So when we do this presentation, we talk about the different causes of the behavior. Some of them are modifiable, some of them are unmodifiable, um, and some of them we can easily meet. So really looking at, is there an unmet need that causes the agitation? Um, those are really quick. Sometimes it's undefined pain. So sometimes our loved one can't tell us that they're in pain. So giving the a Tylenol every six hours, if you see a change in that behavior, really could be related to a pain that they're not able to articulate any longer. Um, sometimes it's cold. Sometimes it's a noisy room. Sometimes it's something completely modifiable, um, hunger. Sometimes as our, our loved ones progress in their journey with dementia, um, they forget to eat, they forget to drink, um, they forget to use the restroom. So making sure that, you know, do you have to use the restroom? Do you have to urinate? Is your bladder full? Um, are you thirsty? Are you hungry? So looking at, is there an unmet need that hasn't been communicated is really easy. Um, some of them are partly modifiable. So you may not be able to change the environment they're in, but is there something in the environment that's triggering the unwanted behavior? Is there is a partially modification is also, is there a medication change that needs to play, take place? We may not be able to completely change your medication profile, but is there a contraindication in what is on their profile? Um, and there are things that we will never be able to, to change. Childhood trauma, 
really that's the big one that comes to mind, but there are some that are completely not modifiable. We can't change how they were raised. We can't change their past trauma. We can't change their disease process. But what we can do is look at triggers for that agitated behavior and start looking at tools in our toolbox to decrease those times. I love how you're helping us to identify what those triggers are and then giving us some tools that can help us make a difference. And we always like to look at this from a research approach. And so I want to know in all your research, what did you discover that if I'm a caregiver or I'm a care provider, what can I do to help my person? So that is a great question. I think first is starting with awareness. When is the behavior starting? Um, I recommend starting a little journal. So if you're caring for your mom and you notice that every time you go to give your mom a shower, she's getting very aggressive or yelling or screaming, or it's just a challenge. So if you start noticing that or start noticing when that agitated behavior happens, what's going on around your loved one or your patient, and then starting to change those modifiable example or modifiable things. The first thing that we were able to kind of attack with our team was showers. Um, because the number one complaint that we got from our care homes that we serve in and our family members at home is, you know, mom or dad or grandma or grandpa is aggressive during shower time. So, so starting with the basic things, did you change the time that they shower? Um, a lot of our elderly patients used to shower in the evening, yet we change them to the daytime. So did we change their shower routine? Um, are, are we giving them privacy? Are we, are we allowing them to be modest? Are they cold? So, so digging into some of those, we created these things, which we actually learned about online, which are called shower ponchos. You buy the cheapest towel because they get heavy and you cut a hole in the center and you put them over your loved one or your, your patient when you bathe them. So it provides warmth, it provides um, privacy. So it takes a, it gives them the ability to be modest while you shower them. Um, and we saw a decline in some of the aggressive behaviors um, during shower time. But some patients, they still would bite or, or kick. So giving them a tool to help occupy them during the shower time Again, going back to 2.2 interventions is what we found as our average. So giving them either sometimes music, playing and singing with them during the shower time to distract them from what's that on, you know, the shower. Um, suckers work wonderful for our patients that tend to bite. Blowing bubbles sometimes and, and, and talking and engaging them. So really, you know, continuing, sometimes it's not just one intervention, but it's continuing down the journey of tools to see how you can um, decrease the agitated behavior and lessen the burden on caregivers. And I keep getting back to sometimes these interventions can just be so simple, you know, considering what is the root of this, you know, if it's privacy, if it's a temperature issue, and the fact that you identified, let's just get a, a towel and cut a hole in it. And the fact that then that can help reduce agitation in the shower, it seems so simple, but yet so logical and effective. For us, we have to get to know our patients. If you're caring for your loved one at home, you already know a bunch of things, you know, what are their favorite things? What were they when they were growing up? What were their passions or hobbies or who were they? Um, and so for us as, as hospice workers coming in, we get to know these individuals down to 
any fun things or anything that they connected value to themselves and then re-engaging them back. Sadly, too often we, we have a consult for an agitation and some of the behaviors are around, I would say the patient is bored. So how do you re-engage them? So not just putting them in front of a TV, but if they were a Lawrence Walk fan, putting them in front, front when Lawrence is playing. And so getting to know who they are will help you develop an individualized plan. You know, a lot of our listeners are, are family caregivers, and so they likely will have kind of that intimate knowledge base of the person that they're caring for. So they likely have tools available to them that maybe they didn't initially recognize as a tool to help reduce agitation. I know another issue for a lot of people with dementia is kind of having too much going on at one time, and sometimes that can trigger problems to happen. What's your experience with that, Ben? So it's true. So if you're finding that your loved one is um, getting agitated every time there's a a um, certain noise or when lots of people are around, you know, my stepdad would get very agitated at restaurants. So we, we knew we had to stop taking him to restaurants and it's the noise. And it wasn't that um, he had hearing aids. So the hearing aids ampl- amplified the noise. Um, I used to love when he turned them off just so he didn't have to listen to us. Um, But really digging into those moments of overstimulation or, you know, is there a certain time of day where maybe they need to take a nap because they're getting exhausted but are unable to articulate that? Um, Is there certain times of day for interactions to be better? Um, And then targeting those times that better engage them and developing a routine or standard plan for them. Because, you know, as we, as we are, as we know, when our loved ones have dementia, routines are so important. So developing a program or plan of your day around their energy times, their lower energy times, and when do you use your tools to decrease behaviors to be consistent, I think are all key. Um, And then the more that you know about your loved one is the more you can reconnect them. If they had a hobby, reconnect it. We had a patient who absolutely loved chickens growing up. And we had a volunteer who spent hours making a chicken book. I didn't even know there were enough chickens to make a whole book, but he did. And she she was nonverbal, but she was able to engage Every time he went there, hours on end, looking and petting these chickens, again, connecting with her was something that she found value as a child and just re-engaging her back into something that she found comfort in. So the more that you know about your loved one, that's where you can re-engage them. I love how you share that with overstimulation. You know, you can have too much of a good thing. I think that it's important that we know our person. And like you had said, we just, we be aware of these things. And I love your idea about journaling those behaviors to really nail down specifically um, what are the triggers and what are the tools that work best for your person? Sometimes um, part of the journaling is the failures. Um, So sometimes you can research and find the perfect intervention per per what it's worked for everyone else, but that's not gonna work for your mom or dad. And that's okay because everybody's individual. So sometimes those failures and being able to journal will help really identify what is the better intervention, um, which I have a fun story about. We had, we had a, a lovely client that lived in a care home 
And she actually lived in a, a memory care unit and every shift change, she got very aggressive. And we had used every tool we've known to man to decrease those agitation behaviors at shift change. Um, and, you know, working with the caregivers and talking about when it was coming up and everything. And it finally dawned on us that it was when the caregivers went in at the end of shift to say goodbye. Mm. So when they went in to say goodbye, it's time to go home. She thought she meant she was going home. So she would actually rally other patients to try to break out of the, the unit to go home because we told her goodbye, it's time to go home. So that gave us the, all of our failures gave us that option of, oh, so this is good. Let's try this. So we started engaging her at that hour and not saying goodbye. And that's hard for caregivers not to say goodbye and have a good evening, but it changed her ability to be calmer and, and just re-engage with an activity at that hour. So we really were able to help her and help the caregivers and all the other patients on the unit that she got all riled up just by identifying that trigger. That's so interesting. And I think especially encouraging that, you know, we're not going to get it the first time, likely. Even if we know our person really well, we're, we're going to have to try a few different interventions to find the one that works. And it also brings to mind, I think, something that a lot of caregivers do struggle with is, who am I doing this for? Am I doing this for the person or am I doing this for myself? And saying goodbye to the person at the end of your shift. I mean, that's just, that's how we leave for the day. So I'm going to say goodbye to her, but really I'm doing that for myself. And so helping to think through who, who am I doing this for right now? You know, I think that that's true. And I think one of the biggest opportunities as a caregiver um, of our family members is identifying that caregiving is a burden. So we have to take care of ourselves just as much as we have to take care of our loved one. So finding um, interventions that help them feel at ease and at peace, but also give us a moment of breath. And it's okay to need that moment of breath or that moment of respite and really relying on um, caring for ourselves and being okay to care for ourselves. Because, you know, as caregivers, we think we're superheroes. And, and we are superheroes, but even superheroes need to eat and sleep and care for themselves. So I, you know, I really think it's twofold, but caring for ourselves is just as important as caring for our loved one because they need us. They need us to be well. Absolutely. And I love how you've provided tools. I appreciate how you've researched these tools and how you've implemented them. And you've got it down to 2.2 interventions work best. Um, I'm thinking about what is typically called the fidget blanket. Recently, I sent my own grandmother, a, and I call her grandma. I sent grandma a beautiful quilt that is a fidget blanket. And my grandma has moderate um, dementia at this time. And she has put that beautiful quilt on her lap and it is made with different things that she used to do for crafts. So it's personalized like you talked about. And it has uh, crocheting on it and buttons and knitting. And my mom said that when she put it on her lap, she um, played with it for an hour. 
And so that gave my mother some time to take care of her, herself. And I just appreciate how mom had some time to take care of herself so that then she could take better care of my grandma. That is such a great story. I love fidget blankets. I love um, homemade fidget blankets that are individualized. Um, it's so important, again, re-engaging with our loved one or our patient on who they were and where they find values. So like grandma loved to quilt. So having those or craft, so having those items, it reconnects her and it reconnects her to the value that she found in herself. We've been able to make fun blankets. We've made tool blankets for some of our gentlemen that have safety, safe tools, but like things that connected them to that, those times that they were building homes or houses. And um, we've made things for teachers that help them re remember or recreate, I should say, that value they had in themselves. So fidget blankets, you can add a little weight to them and they become a weight blanket as well, which is awesome because it, as we know with all of the research around anxiety, weight, providing a little bit of weight gives them the ability to feel um, comfortable and surrounded. So we use weight blankets and weight shawls quite a bit um, just to give a little bit of extra. Weighted stuffed animals or weighted bears and dolls help also make it feel like a real baby or a real animal. And I've sat in so many meetings with one of our weighted stuffed animals rocking back and forth and, and, and spanking its little bum like you do on a, a new baby because it's the perfect weight to do that. Um, so it's calming, but it also um, gives them something tangible to touch and hold. I think that's interesting, but I'm curious, um, when I think about like the weighted baby dolls and the weighted fidget blankets, uh, how many of these tools are, are, should we be using across the stages of dementia or are there different techniques that we should use, say, for someone who's an earlier stage versus someone who's more advanced? So, you know, that's a great question. I think that, you know, knowing, knowing the stage or knowing where, what is your trigger or what is their trigger for their um, agitated behavior and knowing where they are. So a tool that may be um, better utilized later stages of dementia, maybe like a baby doll, may not be appropriate in early sets or early stages of dementia, just because some of our patients or loved ones are still aware enough that they may think of that as a toy. So finding what might be interactive at that time in their dementia and changing up the interventions as they progress down the, the journey of dementia. And that's going to be, oh, that's going to be okay. You know, we had a gentleman a little, bit, a little bit earlier in his stages of dementia that really benefited from a um, briefcase. He was a businessman um, and he was used to going to work every day um, and he was no longer able to do that. So we gave him a briefcase with some office supplies and some tools. And so we gave him back value where he was able to think, well, okay, I'm going to work and I'm going to set up my desk the way I used to. And I'm going to check these papers and read this newspaper. And I'm going to, you know, engage in that. Um, that wouldn't have been appropriate if he's later in his journey and maybe not as verbal or responsive or ambulatory. So again, seeing where they are and, and being okay to change tools up or trying different tools. We have simple solutions that are actually the answer. Like when you were saying um, about this gentleman getting to know him in the briefcase, or it's um, to make sure we're not saying 
it's time to go home because she didn't get to go home and how that one little shift changed everything for not only her, but other people in the unit. Yes. It's um, again, I think going back to that journal and identifying when the behavior happens and what's happening around um, your loved one or your patient at that moment will help drive to an intervention. And it's okay for it to be as something as simple as um, playing music or um, we've had, we had one individual who was devastated at the loss of her cat. Um, she was, she was uh, uh, far enough along in her dementia that we were able to find a fur baby that looked like her deceased cat. And so we gave her this fur baby, they're stuffed animals, they meow, they hiss, um, I think they walk. But we were able to give her what she, she connected again with her cat who had just died. And so we saw a reduction in um, her anxiety and her unwanted behaviors. And she sat with that cat at her bedside. And every time she went to watch TV or engage at the dinner time, the cat came with her. So just connecting with what are the triggers? Hyper, this has been such an enlightening conversation today. I really appreciate all of your insights. And I think what I'm going to take from this is the reminder of finding value for the person, um, really trying to reconnect with who they were in the past um, and, and bringing that back to the present for them. But I'm curious to hear from you. Can you give us your final thoughts when it comes to reducing agitation in the people that we care about? So I would just like to say there is hope and there is help. You know, connect with local resources. Um, there is so much out there, both um, locally, regionally, but connect with your local resources and accept help from family, from um, if there's a faith-based organization you're connected with, it's okay to, to have someone come in and lessen the burden for you. Or if they're willing to make meals for you, whatever is able to help you because it's okay. It's okay to say my superhero needs to hang up for a few minutes. I can have respite and I can rejuvenate myself because care burning is hard. Caregiving is very, very hard. So that's my number one message is there is hope. There is help. It's okay to utilize the resources that want to surround you um, and reach out and take care of yourself just as much as you take care of your loved one. Today, our conversation has been with Piper Frithson, who is a registered nurse and administrator with Casa de la Luz. Piper, we so appreciate you helping us untangle agitation and dementia and how to address it through non-pharmacological interventions. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the time and um, the conversation. Thank you so much, Piper. We just really appreciate you sharing hope and help for us today and for our caregivers. And hey, thank you, Heather, for another great conversation. And thank you to you, our listeners, for joining us. And if you haven't already, we hope you will um, subscribe to Dementia Untangled and share this podcast with your friends. And we also invite you to check out our website, banneralz.org, for additional resources, education, and other ways to find out about research. And we invite you to join the conversation by emailing us at dementiauntangled at bannerhealth.com. We truly appreciate your feedback so much. 
Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dementia Untangled. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dementia Untangled is hosted by Heather Mulder and Janice Greeno, produced and edited by Amber Ayers, and is brought to you by Banner Alzheimer's Institute and Banner Sun Health Research Institute. We are supported by generous donations to the Banner Alzheimer's Foundation. Please visit our website at banneralz.org and follow us on Facebook to learn more about upcoming events. If you have questions or comments, please email us at dementiauntangled at bannerhealth.com.